to be here with you. It is, um, it's always a privilege to come and open God's Word and get a chance to, to preach. I'm indebted to your senior pastor. He has um, been on speed dial for me over the last few weeks as we've gone through some of the administrative challenges of setting up a new church. Um, my wife and I, um, uh, as Will said, um, you know, moved here in 2015 with the goal, the dream of planting this church. And so summer of 2018 has been on our radar for a really long time. But now that it's here, I'm constantly calling Blake for help with this administrative problem or that administrative problem. So I'm grateful. Um, I'm grateful to him for that. So it's good to be here with you um, this morning. Now, I understand that uh, over the past few weeks, you guys have been walking through select psalms uh, this summer. I love the psalms. They're, they're the hymn book of God's people, right? Just this beautiful mosaic of, of lament, of joy, of expectation, of longing, of crying, and dancing. Yes, Presbyterian brothers and sisters, even dancing, that's in there. Now, uh, this morning, though, we're going to take just a brief recess from that series to examine a story that, while it's, it's very different from the poetry of the Psalms, it still gets at the heart of our worship. Why do we cry to God? Why do we exult in Him? Why do we tell Him what hurts? Why do we dance and sing and shout? Why do this elaborate worship service thing on Sunday morning? It's a lot of work, and you know that. You've been setting up and tearing down for a long time. We do it because God saves sinners. God saves big-time sinners like you and me. Now, if you've grown up in and around church, a, a statement like that kind of goes in one ear and out the other. And it's easy to lose the significance of a statement like that. So this morning, as we read from Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36, I'd like you to think about that. God saves sinners. And let the details of this story kind of jar you out. Jar you out of that, um, that complacency, that sense of, man, I've heard this all before. And I want you to pay particular attention to the contrast between the characters in our story, starting in Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verse 36. We're picking up with the story of Jesus' ministry. So starting in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, that is Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. 
a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Holy Spirit, lead us into truth. Help us to understand and apply your word and to know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, about a year ago, uh, my wife Katie and I were out on a date. We don't get to go out on enough dates, but this was a special time. We had just finished uh, getting dessert downtown, and we walked out to, to spend a little time uh, as the sun went down over the park, and we sat on a, uh, on a bench, and it was beautiful and cool. It's hard to remember what it was like when the weather was cool, isn't it? But it was beautiful, and, and we were just enjoying the time together. And, you know, spending time doing one of our favorite things, which is people watching. So we were watching all the people on the green. And then we saw this one young man, an eager look in his eyes, a smile on his face. And we saw it coming from a mile away. Right? I don't know if it was the gospel tracks in his back pocket or just the smile on his face. But he came up to us and shook our hands and introduced himself. And after... He told us who he was. He, he said, can I ask you a question? Do you consider yourself a good person? No, I said flatly, knowing exactly where he was headed. And he said, well, why do you, why do you say that? And I don't remember exactly what I said, but I think it was because no man is righteous, because the, the, the thoughts of his heart is, are only evil continually, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory. I don't remember exactly what I said, but apparently it was a bit strong because my wife jumped in and said, he's a pastor. He's a pastor. Forgive him. You know, it, it all came out just a little too easily for me. So when I think back on that moment, I, you know, I, I wonder, did I really answer this young man honestly? Did I, do I really believe that I'm that kind of big-time sinner? That's our question this morning. Are you a big-time sinner? Are you just kind of a small fry? Are you an addict or are you just a social user? 
Now, I know, I know theologically we know the right answer to this question, right? Right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know that whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So we know the Bible verses. We know the theological answer. But this is a perception question. How do we see ourselves this morning? Are we big time sinners? Are we just little sinners? Not perfect, but pretty good most of the time. Now, how we answer that question is going to determine our response to Jesus in our text. I want you to notice at the end of the story who gets forgiven. Who gets forgiven? It's this woman, this notorious sinner. She's the one who receives the word of pardon from our Savior. I want us to look, as we unpack the text, look at each of the characters. Because there's this really deep contrast between Simon the Pharisee and this woman. Let's start with Simon the Pharisee. All right, now we're not given a ton of details about him, but, but we're given enough, right? We're given enough. We can see that he's a Pharisee. And Pharisees would have been, you know, generally well regarded in that day and age. They would have been looked up to as people who applied the, the law consistently and, and with a level of rigor. So you can see he's, he's probably well respected among the people. You see also that he's invited Jesus over for a meal. Now, you know Jesus didn't travel solo, right? He had an entourage. He, he had a crew with him. And so you, you could assume that this was probably a pretty big meal he was throwing, right? He was someone who had the resources to do that kind of thing, to throw the kind of party that could accommodate the amount of people that followed Jesus. So he was a well-respected person. He was a person with resources of some kind of material means. But you can also see uh, that he's a man of, of scholarly skepticism, right? One scholar really, he points out um, just sort of the, the, the language that Simon uses to talk to himself, right? When he sees this woman, he says, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching his feet, for she is a sinner. You see, he's, he's kind of skeptical. He's not easily duped, right? From the outside, he'd look like, you know, a, a pretty clever, a pretty clever guy. So he was well-respected, he, he was a man of means, he was, he was scholarly. And he was also a person of, of outward righteousness, right? This is somebody that people would look up to in, their, in the way that they conducted themselves morally. Right? Even Jesus, and you can make that assumption just because he's a Pharisee, but even Jesus in his parable is clearly comparing him to the one who owed just a little. So at least outwardly, he's, he's someone who's... You know, doing things right in life. In many ways, if you kind of put all these details together, this is a picture of the good life, isn't it? Right? Respect and influence. A level of power. You know, enough money, enough resources to be comfortable. Intelligence. Uh, a sort of social standing. Someone who's seen as a spiritual authority. The Pharisee looks good. I mean, just according to just about any metric, this guy would be looking pretty good. 
But there's something just dreadfully wrong underneath the surface. Because by the end of the story, this is a portrait of a person whose sins appear to go unforgiven. There's no repentance. There's no offer of forgiveness. He doesn't get it. He doesn't see his need for it. Now, if you were to ask Simon the Pharisee, right, if, if we could teleport him right here to 2018 in Owasso, Oklahoma, and if you could ask him if he thought he was perfect, I highly doubt that he would say he was perfect. He'd probably say no. But if you were to ask him if he was a big-time sinner, I don't think he'd say yes. Now, how many of us are in that camp this morning? Right? We don't think we're perfect, right? That's too much. That's just, that's too much. But we're a little bit better than that other guy. Just a little bit. Just a little bit more deserving. And we do this all the time, right? Now, whether you consciously say these words in your mind, you can't help but think, well, at least I don't treat my wife like he does. At least I'm not as selfish as she is. At least we're better parents than they are. You know? At least our church has good theology. At least our church does something in the community. On and on and on it goes. You fill in the blanks. We tend to compare ourselves to others. We think of ourselves as just slightly more deserving than the next person. It's an easy trap to fall into. It allows us to minimize our need for forgiveness when we compare ourselves to others. Now, I'm coming up on my 10-year reunion from college. It's, uh, it's hard to believe it's, it's been 10 years already. Now, I, I'm not going to get a chance to go. This is a busy season already, and we couldn't afford the trip uh, to Chattanooga. But you guys know what a 10-year reunion is like, right? You might go shopping. You might make sure the car is washed. You're going to maybe go get a haircut. You're going to want to have your best foot forward, right? You want everybody to see how well you've done for yourself. It's a weekend of comparing yourself to others, of comparing your achievements and how you've done to the next guy or to the next girl. It might give you a mo a, just a momentary high if you've done well, or it might make you feel really depressed if you feel like you haven't. This is just how we seem to be wired. At least it's how I'm wired. I, I think it's so easy to fall into this comparison trap, and, and preachers, good preachers might be the worst, right? We see folks struggling in their spiritual life, and we see the issues that they're grappling with, and it's easy to think, well, that's not me. At least that's not me. At least I don't do that. And then we minimize our control issues, our anxiety, our addiction to work. And I'm not speaking metaphorically. These are all things that I wrestle with. The Pharisee in our text is like a preacher or a Sunday morning churchgoer. He looks good from the outside, but there's something wrong. He doesn't see his need. He doesn't see the depths of his own sin. Now, thankfully, there's another character in the story, right? There's another character, the sinful woman. Right? We're not given her name. There's a lot of details we don't know about her. But if you look in the text, 
you can see pretty clearly that she loves Jesus. If there's one thing you know about her, it's that she loves Jesus. And she loves him with everything that she's got, right? She's coming to him with her means, with her resources, such as they are. This, uh, this alabaster flask, right? This would have been an expensive uh, perfumed oil, right? And they were, they were, uh, they were, this oil was put in these alabaster flasks that you'd have to break to get open. And so it was a single-use situation. And they were expensive. And here she is coming to lay this at Jesus' feet. She's loving him with her means, with her resources. But, but that's not all. It's not, you know, she's not stoical about it either. She's loving him with her emotions, with her feelings. She's crying in public. Now, if you've ever cried in public, I mean, that's, you, you got to be feeling it in order to do that. She's loving him with her means, with her feelings, and she's doing it in incredible humility. Right here she is washing his feet, and feet were the main mode of transportation, and they weren't less stinky then than they are now, okay? It's been 2,000 years, but that hasn't changed. It was a menial task to wash feet. It was, it was servant's work. And here she is, not just washing his feet, but wiping his feet with her hair. I mean, that's a... We're talking about personal space. She's loving Jesus with her means, with her emotions, and she's doing it in incredible humility. That's not all. She's, I mean, she's approaching him just in utter vulnerability. Right, she has to walk into this party as someone who is a notorious sinner. Everybody knows what kind of woman she is. And she knows that she's going to make a scene. She knows that people are going to look at her out of the corner of their eye. She knows that they're going to be talking about her as if she's not there. And she steps into this space in spite of the, the jeering, in spite of the jokes at her expense, in spite of those sidelong glances so that she could be near Jesus. She loves Jesus with everything, her means, her emotions, in humility, in vulnerability. Now, that's a pretty amazing picture, isn't it? It's beautiful. It's hard to imagine that kind of public display of affection. If you're someone this morning who tends to compare yourself to others and minimize your need for forgiveness, it's tempting, it's really tempting to read this passage and to look at this woman and think, well, okay, I don't want to be like the Pharisee, so I'm going to try to be like this woman, right? Now, that's not a terrible impulse, all right, because what she does is amazing. It's beautiful. You might be tempted to say, yeah, I'm going to love Jesus with my means. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give until it hurts. I'm going to love Jesus with my emotions. I'm going to be expressive in worship at the right times. I'm going to filter out the feelings that I'm not proud of, that aren't Christ-like. You, you, might, you might think, well, I'm going to be humble, right? I'm, I'll take the most menial tasks. I'll go where you send me, Lord. You think, I want to be vulnerable like her. I'll go to the hardest places and do the hardest things. But here's the problem with that. Instead of seeing our need... Right? We're setting up just a different standard to try to copy. Right? What she does is a beautiful picture of love. 
but it flows from a heart that's been transformed, a heart that's been changed. See, if we try to copy her actions without going through the pain of recognizing our own sin, our own need, without going through the transformation of receiving and resting on Jesus' grace, then we're still going to end up a bunch of Pharisees. Now this year, uh, as I said earlier, we're planting a church on the north side of Tulsa. God has called us to it. We've been blessed with partners from around the city and from within our neighborhood. And we're really excited about it. I don't know how much you guys know about North Tulsa. Um, There are a lot of preconceived ideas about what North Tulsa is like. It is under-resourced in many ways, and there are, there are unique challenges that our community faces. You see, there's this temptation to sort of move toward our work trying to emulate this woman, right? I'll go where you send me. I'll take whatever task you give me. I'll give until it hurts. I'll do whatever for you. And it can appear on the surface to be a very good and godly thing. But if we try to plant new city without seeing our need for God's grace, without seeing that we're jacked up apart from what Jesus has done for us, then we'll never have the right motives. Our work will just be a wash in paternalism, in pride, in racist ideas. It's so easy to see this beautiful picture and say, I want to do that and skip right past the hard work of examining our motives, looking at our hearts. We read this story and we want to be like this woman because she's amazing. So we jump to all the ways we could mimic her sacrifice. But that's to make her the hero of the story and miss completely the third character, right? Because there's one other character in the story, isn't there? It's not a simple contrast. There's a third character, Jesus. Right? Notice who everyone's talking about at the end of the story. It's not the woman, even though she's made this scene. It's not Simon who's thrown this big party. It's Jesus. They're talking about Jesus. Who is this that can forgive sins? You see what Jesus does in this parable, right? He reveals what's really going on in Simon's heart. It's it's almost like he's saying, hey, Simon, you want to compare yourself? Okay, go for it. But realize how far your heart is from God. If you think you're the little sinner, then you don't need a big savior. And he, he goes on to say, this is why you haven't given me any water to wash my feet. This is why you haven't even anointed my head with cheap olive oil. This is why you haven't given me a kiss of welcome. Meanwhile, this woman is pouring these things out at my feet. You see, we can try not to compare ourselves to others, to bolster our self-esteem like the Pharisee, but we're not going to succeed if we don't grasp the depth of our sin. And we can try to become like this incredible woman, humble, vulnerable, giving, earnest, but we won't succeed unless we see the depth of our sins, the depth of our need for this third character, for a Savior. See, part of what makes her actions so meaningful in this text is that they're just a dim reflection of what Jesus does for us, aren't they? Right? 
just a little while later, he's washing his disciples' feet, serving them. And he's not, he's not doing this uh, just stoically, right? Remember his high priestly prayer, his weeping in the garden, his lament over Jerusalem, right? His heart is engaged. And he's, he's coming and giving up his means, right? His resources. He was rich, but he became poor for our sake. And he doesn't do this without having to completely humble himself and open himself up to be completely vulnerable to the sneers and the jeers and the taunting. Guys, he's stripped naked, publicly naked. I don't know how many of you have ever had a dream about being publicly naked, but it's terrifying. And this is what he's doing. Stripped naked, vulnerable. The creator of the universe stretched out on a cross. Her actions here are they're almost prophetic showing us what's to come, showing us what Jesus is going to do for us. Giving up his means with deep feeling and humility, exposing himself to shame, and doing it for the joy that was set before him. Jesus forgives big-time sinners. So I want to ask this morning, how well do we see our own sin? I love here at Trinity that you practice corporate confession, but how do we do personally with confessing our sins in our time with God? Or more to the point, how do we do in our relationships with confessing our sin? In our marriages, with our children, with our friends, are we quick to confess, to own our mistakes and to glory in Christ? Do we boast in our weakness or do we try to cover it up? Are we more likely to focus on the right behavior and ignore the motivation behind it? Do we do things out of a sense of duty or out of a sense of gratitude for what Christ has done for us? I wonder, I wrestle with this verse in 1 Timothy, right, where Paul, he says he's the foremost of sinners. I mean, Paul, he really thought that. Is that how I think about myself? As a big-time sinner, not deserving, the least deserving of God's grace? Are we big sinners or little sinners? How do we see ourselves this morning? Are we quick to compare ourselves or to humble ourselves? Are we more likely to excuse our sin because it doesn't look as nasty as someone else's? Or do we throw ourselves in desperation at the feet of our Savior in repentance? I grew up somehow believing that God was out to get me. I was a sinner. I was a lawbreaker, and I knew it. My thoughts didn't measure up. My words didn't measure up. My attitudes didn't measure up. I lied. I stole. I blew up in anger. I burned with lust. And I thought, he's coming to get me anytime now. He is going to strike me down. But then over time, I began to realize that the gospel tells a completely different story. The deeper our sins go, the greater is our opportunity to see the awesomeness of his grace, to see the significance of his sacrifice. You see, here's the secret. 
there are only big-time sinners in the kingdom of God. Jesus died to forgive big-time sinners, to bring us into his family. So I pray, dear brothers and sisters, that the Spirit would give us eyes to see our own sin and glory in God's grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for not sparing your son, but giving him up to make atonement for our sins, to cover them over completely, to remove them as far as the east is from the west. And Spirit, we pray that we would see how great our need for Jesus is this morning and that that would motivate us not out of a sense of duty, but out of a sense of, of gratitude and thanksgiving. Lord, move us to see, to confess, to repent, to love in humility. It's in Jesus' name we pray by the Spirit. Amen.